You're listening to TCT Radio, recorded live at the annual TCT meeting. Today's episode is hosted by Shelley Wood, with discussion on the DAPT, STEMI, and MITRAL trials, as well as gender disparities in study design. We're going to talk on, about some of the um, late-breaking clinical trials from earlier today, because that's, of course, where we are. We're at TCT 2017. But um, I personally love this as just kind of an open discussion about, first of all, the areas where research is being done. But um, we can definitely talk about the interventional fellow job market. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we're just going to have a free-flowing conversation and have some fun. Great. I think a great place to kick off, though, will be for you to tell us about the clinical trial you presented in the main arena earlier today. The dual antiplatelet therapy has been mainly used after stent implantation to reduce the risk of stent thrombosis. When it comes to uh, the stents we're having, we're using now, these are have really improved considering the the, the previous first generation drug eluding stents. So where we started to do this trial, we were based on the results that these stents have also in the setting of these patients with higher risk, like the, the STEMI patients. On a stent perspective, the outcomes are almost better than the the, all, the rest of the all-comer patients because most of the time these are young patients, the lesions are not difficult. Right. They are thrombotic, but once you solve that and you have to look for dual antiplatelet therapy in event-free patients in the first six months, and that was the design of the trial, that gave us the confidence that we might have to find out that there is no difference. Sure. And, and actually, one thing that you told us in the press conference today is that you even wanted to go shorter, that you were considering even using three months? Yes, I was. And the reason for that was uh, uh, we've seen the healing of the stents on OCT at that time already, and that was good. The stents that were healed. Uh, but it was 2011, 2012. And we just came out with the new stent uh, results that were good, but we had spent like two, three years before hammering everybody that they needed to have 12 months dual antiplatelet therapy. Recovering from the firestorm. Exactly, from mm -hmm. 2007. Right. So this meant trying to break this mentality again, saying, okay, we passed that situation, we have better stents now. Uh, it took a lot. While you can convince the cardiologists, it was difficult to convince the, the house physicians. Right. Because once you got the patients on the trial, they'll go to their house physician and say, what? You want to stop doing antiplatelet therapy? No, don't do that. So you had to start with six months, comparison of six exactly. months versus 12 months. Yes. So they said, let's do six because three will scare a lot of people. Right. So one, one of the points you made that I think is really critical uh, is that the current generation devices have really remarkably thin wire frames. And the, uh, the time to endothelial covering, both in the preclinical work and in all of these observational, you know, we've seen some amazing cases with uh, thin stretch stents. Sometimes you can barely tell the stent is there. Yes. So I, I think it is a powerful observation and uh, and I'm anxious to hear some more of the details of the trial because clearly justified. Yeah, walk us through um, the, the background and the results. Well, as, as I mentioned, the background was the, what we did. So the idea was to see that uh, event-free patients at six months could then be randomized into 
stopping the, the, the Plavix or Ticacrelor or the P, P2Y12 inhibitor they were taking and continuing only on aspirin, while in the other arm we gave it as the guidelines at the time recommended it even now to give it for other six months and then we followed the patients up to two years. The reason why we followed the patients up to two years was that uh, we wanted to also see if there was a rebound effect after stopping of the dual antiplatelet therapy also in the long arm duct. So that's exactly what we did. Uh, we have to say it was not uh, not only difficult to, to change the mentality for doing this trial but also this was an investigator driven trial and the possibilities that we had to perform it were quite limited. We wanted to to really do this trial and just as also mentioned there to open the field again and to create this mentality that also these stents, uh, also these patients are not that high much at risk. They are at high risk for other events. Right, but take but a fresh look at a question when people yes. have got quite entrenched in terms yes. of a full year of, of yes. that. Yes. Okay. So this done, we managed to enroll 1,100 patients and managed to randomize 870 of them because some had uh, events between the, the zero and six months and some were uh, not eligible for, for randomization and because they got dual antiplatelet, uh, sorry, uh, oral anticoagulants. Right. Some withdraw consent, so we lost uh, more than what we initially were thinking that we would lose. We planned to lose 100, but we lost 230. Right. And Underscores the difficulty of just getting that pa pure patient population. Yes. Okay. But however, it still is the first trial that showed that if these if patients are event-free at six months, you can easily uh, stop and safely stop. Well, you just cut to the chase there. Give us the numbers. What were the, uh, What did you see? What was the difference after uh, at two-year follow-up? Oh, we had, let me say, first uh, the combined endpoint. It was a patient-oriented endpoint that included MI uh, stroke, any revascularization and bleeding. Uh, we saw that at two years, the patient in the single arm had 4.6% 4, 4, 4 event rate, while patients in dual antiplatelet therapy have 6.6. The hazard radio was 0 0.73, and then uh, the upper 95% confidence interval was 1.27, and it was that was our upper cut-up for the non-inferiority margin, so it fall within the the margin we had pre-specified, so we could declare non-inferiority. Right. So let me, let me ask a couple of questions about the population to better understand uh, the outcome. What, what was the mean age? Sixty, year, 60 years. So this is a younger than all comers coronary population who typically have a mean age of 65 yes. or so. And I think that's important. And uh, did you have any exclusions for patients with atherosclerotic burden or peripheral disease or No, we did things? not. The only exclusion we had was a stent implanted in the left main because we kind of felt not sure to do that. But you, you didn't have the conviction that because it's a larger high-flow vessel, you needed even less dual antiplatelet. Exactly. But uh, as, I as I said, we were in a setting that... I it understand. was very courageous yeah. trial yeah, at were, the time. You were up yeah. against some resistance. I yes. completely understand. And uh, if the, the chance that it happens is much lower, but if it happens, have devastating uh, results. And so it's changed your practice? Well, let me put it this way. Uh, 
there will be debate about uh, the way the trial was performed, about the statistics of the trial, the numbers we got, uh, the large confidence interval. But we wanted to do this trial, and we did. And what I can say to you is that as a physician, you can look to statistics, but you can look also to what means in your daily clinical practice. I work in a large, one of the largest three hospitals of the Netherlands, which on the size represents a average large hospital size in Europe. We do about 3,000 PCIs, we do TAVI and so on. So if I could see that the entire STEMI population of my hospital for three years that I accumulate the, the popul STEMI population of my hospital in three years long and I will randomize that and I got to this result, that convinced me as a doctor. That's for me is enough. Okay. Then I know that if I do that three years on a row and I still don't see any result, if I have to stop dual antiplatelet therapy at six months, I will. You feel more comfortable. Absolutely. Okay, then who are the patients in whom you won't be doing that, that you would rather keep them on for longer? Basically, uh, we had all coma patients. So... No, no one pulled out of that, those, that data that would change your mind? Okay. No. Uh, of course. We talk also about the fact that everybody wants me to stress that these were event-free patients. Of course these were event-free patients. So they have events, the events dictate whatever you do, even if you had done a randomization previously at yeah. day zero. Of course these patients would have gone out while they were in doubt. So we would have not known if it was a result of doubt or not. But okay. basically what we want to know is if we have a patient that is okay, doing well under doubt, you can take doubt. Can we now, do we have to give it or not? Now, for a stand purpose, we don't. Now, do we have to give it for a thromboembolic prevention? What does it do on six months? Nothing. I see. Okay. Well, I think we could probably come back to this, but we have been joined in the meantime by um, another guest. And Mayra, I'll get you to introduce yourself. Thank you very much. Well, my name is Mayra Guerrero. I'm an interventional cardiologist. I work at Evanston Hospital here with our colleague, Ted. And i um, very happy to be there. And very interested in structural interventions, particularly mitral valve replacement. That's an excellent segue because as um, we were saying earlier, we are going to be talking about some of the uh, late breakers and first reports that were presented today and you yourself presented some data from the mitral trial. Do you want to walk us through it? Sure, thank you. Well, um, this trial is a physician-initiated trial and it's a multi-center uh, study uh, involving 13 uh, participating sites in the U.S. Uh, what we're doing in this trial is evaluating uh, the outcomes of transcatheter mitral valve replacement with the use of the sapien valves, uh, particularly sapien 3. So we start with XT, only a couple of patients at the beginning, but mostly most of these patients have been treated with the sapien 3. In patients uh, who have severe uh, mitral annular calcification, or MAC, but also patients who have failing uh, surgical rings or failing bioprosthesis. Um, so we have a total of 90 patients enrolled 30 in each of those arms. And uh, I think it's important to mention that this is the first trial that actually has prospectively evaluated the outcomes for valvin 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 ring. Uh, the in the mitral position. In the mitral position, yeah. The, the data that we have available is from registries. We have not had, that's why I decided they say it's time to do this. Uh, the, the beginning of this goes back to the experience in MAC. As you know, uh, about four years ago or so, we started doing um, transcatheter mitral valve replacement in patients who were severely symptomatic due to severe mitral valve disease and were not a surgical candidates due to the massive 
amount of calcium in the mitral annulus. Those patients historically have had very limited options because the option was either surgery or just medical treatment, and the outcomes with surgery are not that great, actually. It's very challenging to do a surgery when there is so much uh, calcium burden and the complication rate is high. Right. And because of that, many of those patients don't get treated. So that's how our experience uh, started. Um, when we did the first procedure, it was a transeptal because our surgeons, when I was working at the time, you know, they, everybody was so concerned about, you know, first it had not been done, you know, uh, a transeptal case. Well, there were back then a couple of transepical cases, but our surgeons were very concerned about the uh, lack of enough information and uh, the risk of a transepical access in a patient with severe pulmonary hypertension, peer pressure 95, I remember, right. intubated. And so long story. So the first procedure that I personally participated in was a transeptal DMVR in MAC. And uh, at that time, we did not have a lot of information, actually no information. And um, that's why when um, we performed the procedure, we talked to other collaborators, and actually that's how I got in contact with Ted at that time, and, and um, started to discuss this option for other patients. So to make a long story short, a lot of uh, physicians got interested and started performing these procedures, and we started working in collaboration with the registry. Right. That's the MAC registry. That's then. the MAC registry. Mm -hmm. And during uh, in the efforts of the registry, we realized that the gap of knowledge, it was even larger than we thought we immediately realized this is a very, very, very challenging patient population, very challenging procedure, not a lot known. And the information that we were getting from the registry, although it was very valuable, it was just not going to be enough for us to give us the speed of knowledge to improve the outcomes, because the initial outcomes, as you know, they were not that good. So that's when, that's the birth of the micro trial. Right. We realized, no, we need to do this in a prospective way, with collaboration with core labs, both ECHO and CT, and important with clinical events uh, 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 being adjudicated by an independent clinical events committee. Right. Because in the registry, all I get is the reports that our collaborators give us, you know, based on what they have. And if they tell you no stroke, then you write no stroke. But were those patients um, actually evaluated by a stroke team member? to really check for stroke, I don't know. Right. Um, echo findings, you know, we get the reports or, or, or of what they found, but were those echoes, were there any error or bias um, introduced by the readers? Or, I yeah. don't know. Bias so creeps it in. has to be independent. So that's why we decided to do the trial. Well, anyone who wants to follow this, because I'll do a little plug here, but for some reason, these, um, these, this study caught my eye quite early, and we've reported on quite a few of the different steps from the MAC registry on TCTMD. So I was excited to see the, these early results from Mitral today. Although I, I, some of it you're holding to AHA, I noticed. We're going to get the failed valves um, at AHA just in a couple of weeks' time. But we got the results today for the, um, the, the actual MAC patients as well as the failed ring. Correct. Um, so, so give us the bottom line there. What did you get? Okay. So the bottom line is they're very, very, very different patient populations, okay? But the bottom line, I'll start with the easier of these two patient populations, the valvin ring. Um, what they didn't tell you is that that was the birth of the study, but when we started MAC, we decided to add valvin ring and valvin valve because there was no had trial done. done. Yeah. It had to be done. So we, we did that, incorporating one trial, understanding they're very different patient populations. And uh, valvin ring uh, today, what, they re what we reported is uh, lower than expected 30-day mortality. This patient population had an STS predicted risk of mortality about 9%. And the observed mortality was in the 6% range, 6.6%. And um, 
uh, there were no additional deaths at 30 days. That was in hospital mortality. And overall, the complication rate uh, was relatively low. You know, I, I, need, I would like to emphasize there were no valve embolizations, no valve thrombosis. So that's 100% technical success in that group. Yeah, so the endpoints were uh, technical success at exit from the cath lab and procedure success at 30 days. So those were the primary safety endpoints. We used very strict criteria, very similar to Embark. This protocol was written before Embark criteria were published, but even before they were available, it's very similar to Embark. Not identical, but very similar, very strict. And based on that strict criteria, technical success was achieved in 70% of those patients, so the majority of those patients. And what's important to mention is that the, uh, th this was, the limitation was primarily the need for second valve right. in six of those patients. And that happened in the early experience of the operators. So half of those six patients, three, happened during the operator's first implant in the trial. I don't know if they have done that before or not, but I can tell you in the trial. Right. It was the first implant, and the other three was in the, it was the second implant of that operator. But operators who had uh, several more implants, and I can say I was one of them. It happened to our first valve ring patient. And uh, we did several more, and it didn't happen to us because we learned with case number one, we learned what the problem was. We were, landing zone is different. It, even though the procedure is very similar to Batman valve, uh, our landing zone is different and we were, we needed to be more ventricular. This, this uh, five of these uh, six patients ended up with a transcatheter heart valve to atrial, to the okay. point that the inner skirt was on the atrial side, not providing enough uh, seal and there was parabubular leak to the inner skirt. So had we had a longer skirt, Probably so we would not have needed yeah. a, 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 a second valve. But since we don't have a longer skirt, I don't have the option to choose short skirt, long skirt. What we did is we modified our technique. And since then, you know, we have moved our landing zone a little bit more ventricular, and we aim for a final position, 80% in the ventricle and 20 in the atrium. And since we have done that, you know, we, the rate of need for second valve had uh, decreased. Okay. The important thing to mention also is what happens if you have a second valve. Um, I know now we can tell that in the short term, in the 30 days, those patients uh, did not have poorer outcomes than the other patients. So in fact, all six of them were alive at 30 days and all six of them met the very strict uh, definition criteria for procedure success at 30 days. So just because you don't have technical success, it doesn't mean that you cannot achieve procedure success. And what will be important to show is what has happened a year from now. Right. Can we achieve patient success at one year? And if we can, I'm happy with it, the two valves. What okay. matters is that the patient is alive and doing well. So um, that was the weakness point in technical success. But uh, I think there are some strong points to show that yeah. it's not so bad. Well, certainly that's what the patient's going to care about. So I, have, that's I have a question to Myra. Uh, so first of all, congratulations for Thank the you. complicated study. During the study, FDA approved Sapien for valve and mitral. Correct. Did this help recruiting or did it compromise any recruitment or what is the effect, effect of this in the study? Okay, uh, this study, I gave you a long background because I think this study, the way it was generated is very different than other studies. This is not driven by industry no. and this is done by physicians. So it was a group of colleagues that decided that we needed to have data back then. And the fact that there is FDA approval did not change our need for data. Exactly. So it had no impact at all whatsoever in the interest and enthusiasm of the co-investigators to continue enrollment. I was expecting to even get better. Yeah, I would think FDA. more people would want to get involved in some way, but that it's well, the risk, the risk, I thought, the risk was the opposite. I thought that, well, really? if there's an approval, 
why would others want to enroll in the trial when they can go Just the go easier path? Go, 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 go do it as a commercial case. I was a little worried at the beginning, but uh, talking to our collaborators, not only they expressed that that would not change their interest in participating in the trial to generate the knowledge that we want, because FDA approval um. here or a CE approval or any approvals is very different yeah. than data. And we, what we want is data. Well, I think people probably have seen that this has been a, a therapy and a, a, a use of this technology that has been, as you, you mentioned in the press conference, I mean, there's been, you, you went, especially in the, the Mac cases, there's a lot of hurdles to overcome. Mm -hmm. And hopefully people don't want to run out and just try that at home. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, you haven't even got to the Mac results and you haven't even finished with the valve and ring. But 30-day um, success, uh, even with the six patients that needed two valves, um, is promising. Correct. Okay. And for the, the pure MAC patients? The pure MAC patient, uh, I'll start with saying there's a very different patient population. Just MAC per se is a predictor of poor outcomes, not only in my patients with mitral valve disease, but also in patients mm -hmm. with TAVR. Mm -hmm. You know, there have been these recent reports that even I mean, patients who, uh, who um, come for TAVR and they found to have MAC, yeah. they have poorer outcomes, and the more severe the MAC, the more severe the outcome. So there's a lot of data that we know. Just the presence of MAC, that's a bad thing to have. Uh, in addition to that, the procedure is more challenging because you don't have the anchoring uh, force of a surgical ring or a surgical bioprosthesis to hold a balloon expandable valve that doesn't have any other mechanism for anchoring. Right. Uh, that's one thing, the anchoring. Second is the landing zone. Where do you land the valve? You, know, uh, you do need a lot of calcium for anchoring. And when you have a lot of calcium, it's very difficult to see because literally on Florida, what we see is a donut of calcium. Right. And you only have a few millimeters of transcatheter heart valve. Where do you put that? And, and it's not the entire stem that is covered with skirt, right? You only have 11 millimeters to, be, uh, to place that correctly. So from the technical point of view, that's very, very challenging as well. Um, one more challenge is patients with MAC, uh, most of the patients in the trial, about 70% of them, they were small females, and the pathology was stenosis mostly, not, not mitral regurgitation like is seen with the mitral valve and ring uh, population. So therefore, the size of the ventricle is smaller, and many half, more than half of the MAC patients had a prior AVR. Why did they have the AVR? Most likely because of aortic stenosis. That means that the ventricle is thick. So yeah. you have small cavity, thick ventricle, thick septums. And, uh, and um, so every, everything is against you in, 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 in most of these cases. So most of the patients were rejected. So 92 were presented in the MAC arm. Out of them, 61 were rejected. And the reason for not being accepted in the trial was the risk of LV obstruction and that most of them are risk of embolization. When um, that risk was identified, the, we would, uh, the options were to consider transatrial approach, and the teams had the option to decide whether or not they could offer that to their patients, or they could consider other options, go to other trials like Lampoon or something, and I just don't know Try how many. strategy. Uh -huh, correct. But we were able to enroll 30 in the, in the study. Out of those 30, half were treated with uh, transeptal in, with a transeptal strategy, except for one of them who, uh, during the transeptal, diagnostic transeptal study, we identified difficult anatomy and uh, we anticipated significant risks uh, or complications during the procedure or difficult challenges during the procedure, so it was trans transapical, but the concept is a closed chest. The other half, 15 patients were treated with a surgical transatrial approach. Uh, the reason for that uh, was uh, severe 
risk of LVOT obstruction in most of them or embolization. And what the surgical approach gives you is it allows the operators to resect, surgically resect the anterior leaflet to decrease the risk of LVOT obstruction and place anchoring sutures to prevent or decrease the risk of embolization. So from the technical part, you know, it's attractive. However, it is a much more invasive procedure compared with a transvenous right. transeptal procedure. And uh, most of the MAC patients I mentioned, there, they were female patients, and some, many of them were frail. So the ability to tolerate such invasiveness or such an aggressive procedure you know, is limited in some patients. And um, there were three deaths in the MAC group uh, uh, that were uh, treated with transept transatrial axis, one death in transeptal and one death in transapical. Uh, too small of a number to give us any statistical uh, significance, but um, there were more in the right. But you did make the point, and I think for for TAVR enthusiasts that are, are paying attention to the mitral space now, those that number of deaths uh, perhaps seems high. Um, even looking back to the original um, aortic valve transcatheter replacement days, but you made the point in the session um, earlier that this is in fact quite an improvement on what was seen in the early, early registry cases. Compared with the registry, definitely. So yeah. the, the uh, in-hospital mortality, all comers, you know, of all this, this five deaths, you know, the independent of the approach was 16.7%. Uh, That's a much, uh, you know, uh, improvement compared with the early experience in the registry where was like in the 30%, like 37 at the beginning, then slowly went up to 22, then you know to the 16, 17. So it's an improvement. In the transeptal and transatrial, uh, actually those two is 13%, and then 20% in the transatrial, but no statistical significance due so, to so the small numbers. really big point in trying to understand what led to the improvements over time, and particularly between the registry uh, experience and the trial experience. Uh, one of the most remarkable parts of the trial experience was the screening calls. And uh, these are attended by everybody who has a patient and then many of us who just want to hear what's going on. All right. And uh, in addition to Myra, a couple of other imaging specialists, dedicated uh, interventional cardiology imagers. Uh, so Ahmed Persnani from our group, uh, with a CT background and Didi Wang from Henry Ford, who uh, may be the most remarkable mm -hmm. imager in this field uh, on the planet. And she's famous now because we have her picture on the cover of TCTMD's yeah, display so <laughs> with, her, with yeah. their 3D hearts. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Uh, but I think I, I, I would like to speculate that if we could go back and start the global registry again and that all of those patients went through the screening call process two things would happen. One is many would be screened out, just as, you know, we don't know how to do this yet. It's not that we can't or shouldn't. It's we're not there yet right. for one or another anatomic features. And among those that made it through the screening process, I think outcomes would be improved because the insight that we all got through the development of the trial uh, was really remarkable. And uh, people got better and better at leveraging the CT for planning the procedure discussions of where to put the transeptal puncture, what uh, fluoroscopic angles to work in, uh, all of these procedural details really improved. Okay. 
Well, it's been interesting watching the progress for sure. And we will do more of that. I, I, I'll be seeing it at 8J for that matter. So that's not done. Um, let's, let's change gears a little bit because it's always nice to get a little more. Um, this is very scientific, what we've talked about so far. But, uh, and we can continue with the science. But I'm going to ask uh, Chadi, what, what is the most interesting thing you've seen or done in Denver? This is a really loaded question because it doesn't <laughs> need to have happened in these uh, in the halls here. But um, well, I mean, you've learned about two new things right here on the show. But uh, what else? Tell us something. In exciting. Denver or in TCT? Both. Okay. <laughs> in Denver, I uh, I lost my coat in the airport, so it was very cold. Okay. <laughs> I think I, I lost my mitten, so I, I can understand where you're coming from. Yeah. So that's uh, it was really unexpectedly cold. I, I watched the weather before, but it was really cold. I thought I'm prepared, but I lost my stuff in the airport. Um, I think the mo the most uh, prominent thing that is new in TCT is the diversity session that Dr. Roxana Maram put together uh, yesterday. I think this is a new theme. We didn't see this before. Right. Another program. I mean, the trick break and trials are great, the science is great, the fellow session from fellow perspective, didactic is amazing, but the diversity is there. It's a, it's a new topic. It actually, I think she faced some challenges putting it together. But yes, it, she it, did. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what's the background behind it. I want to talk to her about it, but I think it's uh, definitely one of the most amazing things I have seen in TCT. Uh, it's um, uh, different backgrounds, especially talking about, I was paying attention to every study now once I attended that session about recruitment of female and heart disease in, in studies and trials. And they're always in the 20s to 30%. Uh, so that sometimes questions if that's, uh, whatever our results are, are yeah. can be applicable to women's. Uh, or should we have, and we have some old studies that has even higher percentage of men in the study. Oh, it's a great point because I feel like when I first started writing about cardiology, which is a long time now, I heard about this and I thought, okay, well, that's something that's going to be easy to fix. I won't be writing that type of story for long. And yet I go and see the um, Compass results, I think it was at ESC, and it was 25% women. And I just thought, why don't they just cap the men? Like you reach your quota of men yeah. and now you can only enroll women. Like why doesn't that happen in trials? Ted, come on. You've been doing this well, for a while. The, there are a couple of reasons that are epidemiologic and uh, have nothing whatsoever to do with disparities that reflect any kind of bias in practice. So the fact of the matter is that while heart disease kills women indiscriminately in the same way as men, uh, the typical acute presentation of later. Acute, the, the acute coronary syndromes uh, is it's easier to diagnose and it's clearer in men. So there is an entry bias for trials for men. And because there's an age cutoff, they're not perhaps enrolling. Sometimes, people. yeah, particularly trials that have an, uh, an upper age cutoff of 80 years. And I, I want to give you an example of a place where the opposite is true and it has nothing, again, to do with our drive to include more women in trials. It's the way that the disease works, and that is in aortic stenosis, where there are typically either a 50-50 male-female ratio or even a predominance of women. And uh, the, the, one of the biggest reasons, in my opinion, and this is hard to prove because it's about patients who don't make it to the trials, is that the presentation of aortic stenosis in women tends to be associated with preserved or hyperdynamic left ventricular function, and in men with diminished left ventricular function. So the uh, ejection fraction as the most powerful predictor of survival in every cardiac syndrome 
suggests that we see more women for trials because men, and you might say, uh, and myself as the father of three daughters might say, as the weaker sex, die off faster and don't present for the trial. So it, it, the disparities are often biologic, uh, and that has to be sorted out from social determinants. Right. I actually did film a, a um, episode of On Record, our video program, um, with Pam Douglas, uh, Selena Young, and Wayne Batchelor yesterday. So that's going to air in a few months, and it'll talk about some of the, the issues that you've raised in terms of the theme of this year's meeting. But, um, Elvin, how many women were you able to enroll in DAP STEMI? Yeah, that's very funny. I just wanted to say that we had a 75% men. <laughs> yeah. It, and, and, and what do you think I was said, the if reason you look for to that? The epidemiologic data is uh, uh, it's patients were six years old, yeah, 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 and seventy-five yeah. were men. And I, I fully agree <laughs> that uh, the presentation of acute coronary syndromes is more and more obvious by men. But if it it might take a bit longer to enroll, but shouldn't it be sort of mandated from the outset that if we want to get an answer as to whether this treatment works or not in women, we're going to need to enroll the women or we're going to enroll the minority groups and actually get those answers. But is it, is it just that you only have a certain amount of time? These are investigator-initiated studies, therefore you take whoever you can get and then you're done? No, the... There are some rules dictated by the protocol, and that if you say this is an old comer, so every next coming patient should be in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if every uh, the chance of the next old comer is three out of four to be a man, that's what you end up well, with. Seven if, yeah. But to your point, Shelley, if the trial is built with a uh, with a cap, with it's all comers. You reach your you fill the man mm -hmm. jar. Yeah. And then you mm -hmm. have to fill the woman jar of all comers. Or a stratification so that uh, you do yes. that in steps so that you don't necessarily stop enrolling men at a, at a top cap, but rather if for every you know, four men you have to enroll at least two or three women so that you yeah. leapfrog. I'm no clinical trialist, but sometimes it thinks like, oh, I've got, I've got an idea oh, that's, here, that's guys. A, that's, that's a good, a good point. <laughs> let's, let's do that in the next trial to fill the jar of men and then have a jar yeah. of women. Okay. Of I, I, I'll write about that one if you do it. Um, okay, so that was from Chadi. Most interesting thing here on the on the floor at DCT. Elvin, what about you? Did you learn something new or do something fun? Uh, I'm planning to do something fun tonight because till now I was pretty <laughs> it's been full, busy full with on. the sessions and uh, other stuff other than the late breaking trial and Convenient. I have to so say, I I have to say it's some experience to, to do a late breaking trial because not only the preparation to it but I think all kind of uh, cardiologic networks will ask you to give an interview and this is my last so in the end of, the, of it you end up doing your your presentation. You know but your numbers. <laughs> you have said it so many times. You have rehearsed <laughs> for for all the uh, all the the networks that uh, it, uh, it you, you dream about it after right, a while. Sure. But, but I would say another thing that happens in the trial presentation process is you start to have new insights <coughs> during this post presentation kind of interrogation and dialogue. So have you, reach, have you reached any new conclusions or new <laughs> insights about your own trials since you presented it? Actually, yes. Uh, because when you want to present it, there are different ways. You have a certain limit of time and there are certain points you want to stress and say, this is the most important things I want. But then when you have the comments of other people, 
and you start to put all the pieces of the puzzle together, you get indeed a better view of it and also a better evaluation of it. Let's, let's say that when you do a trial, you are kind of biased in a way that you like it more than the others would think of it. And uh, when you have then the feedback, uh, it's really nice it for what they, what they appreciate and what they also put as a critical point. Some of them you know, some of them you don't. So that makes you also better in... Uh, yeah, I've heard that point before because of simultaneous publications in the journals now. And, and so that if you don't get that kind of feedback through the presentation process and then have, whatever, six months before your, your paper's accepted at a journal, because you had simultaneous publication. No, I didn't. Oh, you didn't. One of the lucky ones. Okay. Well, I mean, so people <coughs> wouldn't see it that way. I, well, I, I, I really strongly agree with you, uh, Shelley, that their simultaneous publication is exciting. And there is an important benefit to having all the data available for critical examination very quickly after the trial presentation. But you have made a very important point that uh, many things are illuminated even in the first couple of days after a presentation. The conversation. <coughs> and you miss this in the simultaneous publication. Yeah. Even in the in the almost now mandatory. Uh, editorial to go with the simultaneous publication because right. the editorialist is writing in isolation without the benefit of this dialogue. Yeah, I can tell you it used to be a lot more exciting when as journalists we would travel to these meetings and we would be the first ones to write about your, your exciting work. But now you have the press conference, you've got the slides, you've got the paper. You sometimes think, well, why did I come here? I could have just phoned you up on the phone. But anyhow, it's just the way things are now. And I'll look forward to seeing your publication come out and I'll compare it to what I've seen here and seeing what some of your uh, points of illumination were. Ted, tell us Thank something you. you learned here that might surprise us. I'm not so sure about surprises. I think uh, the aggregate of data, and Myra is a big contributor, and we saw several other mitral replacement uh, early results presented, uh, Tendine early feasibility and the Intrepid uh, early feasibility. And uh, I think the, the big takeaway for me is that after a long period of very slow work developing mitral replacement we're, we're really now taking off a little bit Got a foothold. And, and seeing some measurable demonstrable progress in the technology and in the clinical outcomes right well gary mintz made the comment in the press conference today that he thinks the the rooms where this stuff is being presented or the cases and things like that are are a little more jam-packed than they've been in other years because people are realizing this is actually making progress Myra, any um, sort of interesting things here that we might not have missed, or uh, we did miss? No, no, one comment, also the same thing. I noticed that uh, there's a lot more than I was expecting. And the reason, one of the reasons why I had the opportunity of noticing that more is just a few minutes ago, I had to give a talk to fellows. And the talk was to, is about transcatheter mitral valve repair and replacement today and tomorrow. So when you do that, you have to review all the recent yeah. stuff. And it was a lot more difficult to do this time. You know, when I have repaired something like that in the past, uh, even though there has been an explosion, before there was an explosion of concepts and cool pictures. So your slides were always nice because very nice devices. All of them in very early experience. At those meetings, everybody said, well, the gestation's times for PMBR is gonna be a lot more, or the progress is gonna be a lot much uh, slower than Taver. And uh, today, just the many of the slides that I had to present um, they were about now data, either early feasibility data or one-year follow-up data in some of this. Uh, the uh, uh, beginning of already a pivotal trial. 
you know, with the Apollo trial, you know, so much more to condense and such a talk. Keep on top and, of. And some of those lies, you know, I couldn't have access to the material because the, the talk was just a few minutes after the uh, late-breaking trials. And, um, you know, it was just uh, a little bit more challenging. You're doing it. Too much. And, uh, Except a couple years ago, I mean, I can remember at a CRT meeting, year before last year I guess there was so many things being presented I thought I can't even do a story about 18 different possible valves so it does seem that some of them are falling out of the race mm -hmm. aren't they I mean maybe they're not I just they just haven't gotten 30-day data yet but I, I had to prioritize for this talk data so it, it was no longer about what's coming new I mean what is the reality today this was for fellows where, where what do you want to learn and where can you refer a patient? What are the options for your patients now in the U.S.? And now the options are a lot more with the new clinical trials that are starting or with recent approvals, for example, like uh, mitral valve and valve, you know, the recent of the approval. So it's a, it's a reality now that there's yeah. a lot more, there are a lot more options now for our own patients here and there. So if you are a mitral valve, I think a company, startup, you're hoping to get... Um, you're hoping to get bought out by one of the big guys in much the same way that Chadi is looking for a job. Yeah, so I was <laughs> so about, just about to jump in because she's talking to the fellow. I'm glad yeah, I have uh, kind of esteemed the structural experts here. So one of the challenges we have here is the, uh, you are doing one year program and then you have passion for structural and then you pursue an extra year. And, uh, or sometimes extra year in CTO uh, or a CHIP fellowship that is coming up. All, not, not ACGME accredited, but there's still, I mean, an extra training. This extra skill set, uh, although it's in high volume center, you get out to your hands on a lot of tools and uh, good numbers, but when you go to promote yourself or market yourself in the market, I mean, nobody kind of, especially at this time, uh, the tight market is really tight. Right. They're looking for somebody who has been doing this for four or five years or even, even 10 as an expert and then he joined a practice to build it up or to kind of bring new experience to the center. But somebody like us graduating, it's going to be very challenging. It is interesting. You've gone to the trouble to learn the extra skills, but now you've got nowhere to gain the experience right. with them. And most on average, when you're reaching that extra year of training, everybody above age 35. And most of them are married and most of them have kids and they want to build a, a family. So what they ended up doing, which is I'm seeing this in front of me, is sometimes they just go back and hi get hired as a coronary operator, which is that's what they are supposed to do. Uh, but uh, that extra year that they're done, probably it wouldn't be practiced. Wow, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Unless they can actually build something themselves, but that's a tough go, I yeah. would imagine. Or going, a uh, good point, going to a more rural area or a far isolated area where people want to start a program and put it together, but we have no administrative skills. We have no way, no, no experience to hire or interview a nurse practitioner for the program. We don't know about the fund, how to manage funding. Even we don't have any idea about billing. <laughs> so all these barriers, I think, is make it more challenges for the fellows. And I, I even we wrote a kind of a so, small segment through Jack is about the challenge we have to incorporate some of these skills during our training, not just the clinical skills, like how to bill, how to negotiate a contract, how to interview a candidate for your practice, how to promote your practice, and uh, and so forth. Yeah, I know Yael Maxwell has touched on some of these topics in the Fellows Forum on TCTMD, yes. and, yeah. but that's a bit of a closed room. You're, you're trying to bring the conversation to people that are more senior in their careers. So I'm sure they're all listening to TCT Radio, so maybe you'll get some traction <laughs> from there. But uh, I think we can probably wrap this one up. I really appreciate um, you guys coming and speaking on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy you. the rest of the meeting.